Life Out Loud is a literary nonfiction podcast series that features real student stories. Born in a John Jay College creative nonfiction writing classroom in the fall 2015 semester, Life Out Loud seeks to diversify the perspectives typically shared in the CNF genre. Our project aims to amplify voices seldom heard through artful truth-telling simply because we believe that all stories matter. We make them, and they make us. You can always listen at lifeoutloudpodcast.com. Hi there, and welcome back to Life Out Loud, a literary nonfiction podcast through which we tell true, maybe all too true, stories. I'm Evelyn, one of your hosts today. I'm Francesca, another one of your returning hosts who is also reading a story for this episode today. And I'm Sadie, also one of your hosts today. Before we get into the episode, we are so excited to share that after four years, Life Out Loud has shared its 100th story. Thank you to all of the incredible authors that have shared pieces of their lives through this podcast over the years. Hi everyone, I'm Karen, and we want to emphasize that having been able to share this many stories, primarily from the experiences of students of marginalized identities, has been an incredible experience for us all. It's a big deal that we can continue to drive this forward and keep diversifying the creative nonfiction genre. And I'm Leisha, and thank you to our listeners for all your support for 100 Stories and Counting, and thank you especially for joining us today on the fourth episode of our fifth season, entitled Help Not Wanted. And I'm Samantha. In this episode, two authors look back on instances of their childhood when outside help steps in and is anything but welcome. Let's get into the stories. This first story is by an author that has previously hosted and written a story on the podcast, Francesca. Francesca is a senior at John Jay College, majoring in English with a minor in criminology. She was born in Massachusetts, but raised in Brooklyn practically all her life. With plans to become an advocate for social justice, she is passionate about criminal justice reform, often volunteering with the American Civil Liberties Union, ACLU. During her free time, she enjoys singing, reading psychological thrillers, and writing romance novels. I'll warn in that this story touches on very sensitive topics that may be difficult to hear. Listener discretion is advised. Let's take a listen to Francesca's story entitled, I Have Good Parents. I told the dean at my school that my parents beat me with a belt. She was a scary lady with red frizzy hair and she always wore shades indoors with a signature leather jacket. That day, Miss Cooper took off her shades, grabbed my hand, and leaned in close enough for me to make out every wrinkle on her face. Her beady eyes managed to look soft, but for some reason, that made her even scarier to me. So you said you're scared to go home because they might beat you? How often does this happen? I pulled my hand away from hers quickly and started playing with the beads in my hair. I didn't tell her because I wanted to talk about the beatings. I told her because I didn't want that phone call home about the Ezekiel situation. Earlier, when Miss Myers caught Ezekiel touching me inappropriately, I froze up and she assumed we were fooling around together. Ezekiel did that sort of thing with lots of girls in our class and all they did was laugh. So it couldn't be that serious. I didn't want to tell on him, so I agreed with whatever Miss Myers thought she saw and apologized. 
I've gotten plenty of beatings for lying, and I knew it was wrong to lie, but this time, lying did more good than bad. Getting a kid like Ezekiel in trouble would make things harder for me. Ezekiel had the power to turn everyone against me because he had done it just last week when I didn't share my sparkly pens with him. It didn't matter that he sometimes made me cry in the bathroom or that I despised coming to school in anything form-fitting. It only mattered when he was nice to me. Of course I'd get a beating if my parents found out I was letting a boy fill me up at school. So when Miss Cooper pulled out that blue form, I blurted it out. I knew the blue form equaled phone call home or even a parent-teacher conference. I was hoping Miss Cooper would feel bad for me when I mentioned the inevitable beating and let me off with the warning. Right away, I could tell it was the wrong move. It was the wrong move because now Miss Cooper had worry lines on her forehead, as if my parents were bad people for doing that. It definitely sucked to get a beating, but they weren't bad parents. I finally answered her question. They only beat me when I've done something wrong. Miss Cooper tried to touch my hand again, but I shook my head. I wanted her to move back and stop looking at me like that. She obviously wasn't going to help me the way I wanted. There was a long pause where she gazed at me like I needed to be rushed to the hospital immediately. Talk to me. What are these beatings like? What happens? Right away, I knew I shouldn't tell her that. But then she gave me a smile, and Miss Cooper rarely ever smiles. It's okay. You can tell me. Nothing will happen. You're safe here. I shrugged and looked away. A belt. Only when they're really mad. I had this idea that I should look relaxed as I said this so she'd stop making such a huge fuss. So I leaned back and crossed my legs. Her eyebrows shot up to her red hair. Wow, okay. I watched her take a thorough scan of my body. Do you have any marks or bruises from these beatings? I shook my head. That didn't even matter. I definitely wasn't going to answer that one honestly. It suddenly felt like she could see right through my shirt and peer at the scar near my ribcage. She tilted her head in a way that made me feel like she knew I was lying, so I looked away. When I lied to Miss Myers, she seemed like she believed me, but Miss Cooper wasn't as convinced. I wish she were more like Miss Myers. I alternated between crossing my legs and tucking my feet underneath the chair. My gaze was drawn to the large window that stood between the kids playing in the backyard post-dismissal and me, and that's where I wanted to be. Can I please go now? I made sure to look her in the eye this time so she knew I was serious about leaving. There was a brief silence before Miss Cooper squeezed my shoulder. Of course, go play outside. I stood up slowly. Am I still going to get a phone call home? No, don't worry about that. Miss Cooper nudged me. Thank you for talking to me. I'll see you tomorrow. I smiled, my shoulders sagging with relief. I knew lying would pay off. Miss Cooper kept her word because there was no phone call about the Ezekiel situation, but instead there was a call from the Administration for Children's Services. My parents didn't tell me right away, so I had to eavesdrop on hushed, tense conversations for the entire day. 
I looked up what ACS was, but I didn't understand the nature of our situation until they sat me down. When they called me into their room, my limbs seemed to drag me down. My mom's mouth was stretched real tight into a firm line, while my dad just looked neutral, calm almost. So these people, ACS, are going to be investigating us because they think we're not good parents. I gripped my stomach and my dad touched my arm as if to soothe me. It felt like I was looking at my parents, but I wasn't seeing them. I understood right away that this was happening because of my conversation with Miss Cooper, and I automatically resented her for it. What a traitor. Are you guys going to jail? I squeaked. <laughs> no, we're not going to jail. A social worker is going to come here in the next few days and take a look around the house and ask you and your sister questions, you know, to find out how we treat you guys, what we're like as parents. The entire time that my parents were speaking to me, my mouth hung open. They threw words around, but I only registered a few. And the thing that stood out to me was foster care. My mother's voice dropped when she mentioned foster care, and she gave me her stern, wide-eyed look. If you don't go about this carefully, then that's where you'll end up. Do you know what happens to kids in foster care? You won't have the luxury you have now, I'll tell you that much. My mother leaned forward. And who knows what type of foster parents you'd end up having. They could be terrible people. How could these ACS people be coming over to figure out if my parents were bad people just for me to end up with bad people? My heart raced as I struggled to figure out what to think and what to say. I didn't want to voice my confusion because it seemed like it would just raw my mother up. I eventually decided to Google it later. All right, honey. My dad put a hand up as if to silence my mom, speaking to her in Creole. Poseco. My mother jerked back and spoke so loudly it made me flinch. You don't think she needs to know what happens if she says the wrong thing to these people? They're trying to take our children away. She spoke faster and faster, and now I could see her veins popping. What do you mean, tone it down? My dad shut his eyes for a moment. He ignored my mom and turned to me. As long as you listen to us, then everything should be fine. Just relax. The house phone started ringing and my mother left the room to get it, and I blew out a sigh. It was easier to keep my tears from pooling with her gone. What am I supposed to say and do when they get here? My voice cracked. My dad always told me that as a parent, he knew better than me, and I always hid an eye roll when he said this. But this time, I believed him. I needed him to tell me what to do. It's simple. ACS is going to investigate and look around the house, but that will speak for itself. When they interview you privately, though, make sure you don't mention anything physical. Don't tell them you get hit, beat, or slapped. He spoke very slowly and enunciated very carefully. It almost looked like he wanted to write it down for me. Although I tried not to, I must have made a face because my dad gave me a warning look with his mouth twisted up. If you so much as hint at any of those things, then you're done for. They're going to take you away. Again, I was seeing how necessary it was to lie. My Google search wasn't as helpful as I thought it would be. 
I read a bunch of terminology on websites that I didn't quite understand, like neglect and sexual abuse. But one thing that was made clear to me was that beatings were illegal. At first, I thought the information I read on the internet was just dramatic. I couldn't believe that when my parents beat me with a belt a few months ago for being too talkative during class that it was illegal. Beatings were normal. All my friends got beatings from their parents too, and with far worse things like wires, wooden spoons, and shoes. So I was part of the lucky bunch who only got the occasional belt. One day, while we were all eating macaroni and cheese, I found myself staring at my parents intently. I tried to see them as the child abusers that the website suggested they were, but I just couldn't. These were the same parents that always let me climb in between them in bed whenever I had a bad dream and played a game with me until we all drifted back to sleep. These were the same parents that tried and failed to teach me how to swim and practice hair braiding on my dolls with me. I hated it when they would beat me with the belt. I would plot to run away nearly every time it happened. But the feeling always went away once I stopped crying and I was left with a throbbing headache. They weren't bad people. I didn't need a new set of parents from foster care. Even though I told myself that I was ready and the visit would be no big deal, my body betrayed whatever my mind said. I couldn't even stomach the thought of sausage and eggs that morning. The mere smell made me want to throw up. As we waited for the social worker to arrive, I couldn't stop the leg shaking or the hair fussing, so I tried to keep busy. I made sure to clean my room thoroughly, whereas I usually half-assed it when my mom forced me to clean it. I even asked my dad if he needed any help running errands, even though I had a list of new episodes of my shows lined up to watch. When the social worker arrived, I thought it was the wrong person at the wrong house. She looked way too nice and normal. She was dressed in blue jeans and a yellow flowy shirt, and she had on pretty winged eyeliner that I only saw on TV stars. When she smiled at me, I almost smiled back. She made a regular conversation with me by asking who my favorite character was on Totally Spies and telling me she used to love wearing her hair the same way I had it. I wish she was old and mean and didn't smile or distract me. The only thing constantly reminding me that she was the enemy was the clipboard in her hand. The questions started off basic until they got a little more serious. I was feeling calm until I had to lie. So what happens when you get in trouble? She asked me. Um, nothing, I shrugged and thought back to the prep with my dad that I had memorized, our half-truths. My parents will either give me a timeout or take my things away. They ground me, basically. I watched as she wrote something down, and I craned my neck to read, but I couldn't see. My heart skipped a beat when she caught me peeking. She smiled at me. So they don't beat you at all, or hit you with any objects? She spoke softly and had really warm brown eyes that were nice to look at. I wish we could go back to discussing Totally Spies. I sighed. No, they don't. My parents don't hit me. The lie rolled off my tongue easily. I waited for her to bring up Miss Cooper and tell me that I told the dean otherwise, which is why we were sitting here, but all she did was nod again and jot something else down. I watched her closely to see if my lying was convincing her. 
I couldn't read her at all. This was a lie that mattered more than all the other ones I've told this past week. I'd take a beating right now if it meant I didn't have to be snatched away from my parents. I can't believe I dared to tell that traitor the truth in order to avoid a temporary beating. I was so stupid. The social worker asked me more questions about if I felt safe and what type of parents I had, if they drank or did drugs, and it was all pretty ridiculous. Of course they didn't do that stuff. We were good. She packed up to leave shortly after questioning me. As she left, my parents questioned her about how long the investigation would take overall and what to expect. It can take up to 60 days, so you guys can't travel too far until we've closed the case. My mom shook her head and mumbled something in Creole that I didn't quite catch. I knew she planned to go to Boston that coming weekend to visit her brother. I ignored the way my stomach twisted up at the realization that I was holding her back. There was an awkward pause before my dad asked another question. Are you allowed to tell us who called ACS on us? We think we know who. I went completely still. My heart started beating so fast and loud that I felt it throughout my entire body. The social worker shook her head. No, we're not allowed to disclose that information. Who do you guys think it is? I shot her side profile a dirty look. Why did she need to know that? My dad began speaking, but my mom's reply came in faster with a much sharper tone. It's the people we rented the house to downstairs. They're bitter that they can't make rent and we're pressing them for money, even though we took it easy on them for three months. This is their way of retaliating. The social worker hummed sympathetically, then turned towards the door once more. Well, I can tell you guys it wasn't them. My dad scoffed. It had to be them. Who else would it be? I didn't breathe easy until she was well down the sidewalk and across the street. For the following week, I breathed easy because I thought it was over. I assumed my social worker reported to her boss that there was nothing to see or find and that we were in the clear. But then my parents said we had to see someone else for the investigation. When I took a shower that morning, I spent 10 minutes trying to devise a plan that would get me out of going. But eventually, I realized that if I didn't go today, then I'd have to go some other day. After a 40-minute drive, we arrived at a small center that looked like a glorified daycare. Everything was bright and eye-catching, from the huge colorful rug to the cartoon paintings on the wall. I spotted an area with coloring books, board games, and puzzles, and I immediately allowed them to distract me. I couldn't concentrate on the beach puzzle I chose to work on, though. I just kept trying to eavesdrop on my parents' conversation, trying to collect information on what to expect at this place, but they spoke too low, their crayol too fast and advanced for me to understand. Someone eventually called me into a room, and I tensed when I saw that it was a white woman. My mind automatically went to Miss Cooper, although they looked nothing alike. This lady was petite and blonde and was wearing my favorite color, lavender. I hated lavender on her, though. Hi, Francesca. Why don't you have a seat? I didn't return her smile and merely walked over to where she gestured. 
I huffed and dropped myself onto the cushion with unnecessary force. I received a similar line of questioning that the social worker gave me, but it was more detailed and prompted more conversation about who I was as a person. I wasn't as relaxed as I was with the social worker, even when it came to the easier questions. I took long pauses to formulate my answer, cautious of saying the wrong thing. I needed my line to be convincing, especially for another white person. Who knew what she would write in that stupid book? What do you like to do for fun? I kept my gaze on her red vase past her shoulder. I read a lot, and I like to sing. Her face lit up. My son loves to read. At the mention of her son, I narrowed my eyes at her. I wonder how she'd feel if I tried to take her son away from her. Who's your favorite singer? Do you have one? She pressed on. My favorite singer was Beyonce, but I shook my head. Okay, cool. That's understandable. There are so many people to choose from. Do you do a lot of physical activities like playing outside, sports, or even dance? I shrugged. I don't really play outside that often. I do praise dance at church sometimes. She nodded. All right, well, if you don't mind, I want to take a good look at you just to make sure everything's good. I had no idea what she meant, so I just stared at her blankly. The lady smiled at me and urged me to stand up. Do you have anything underneath that? Why don't you take off your sweater so I can take a look at your arms? I didn't move. She tilted her head and gave me something that looked like a sympathetic smile. It's procedure. I have to make sure that there are no marks on your body. I believe you when you say your parents don't beat you, but I have to make sure that there are no marks or bruises that say otherwise. There was a tightness in my chest that made it harder for me to breathe as I peeled off my sweater, followed by my pants when she instructed me to do so. I had cuts and bruises on my body, but that's because I bruise very easily, whether it be from falls or mosquito bites. I had only one scar on my upper stomach as a result of a beating. I had no idea what she'd make of that scar, or if she'd believe any lie I told about it. I didn't prepare a lie for this scar, and the realization made me tremble as I struggled to think of something. She surveyed my body and walked around me several times and leaned in close. I almost threw up when she asked me to take my tank top off. No, I said instantly. I couldn't show her. I didn't think of a cover-up in time. Even as the seconds ticked by and bought me more time, my mind was still blank and I was still shaking. The lady looked at me for a few beats and then nodded. Okay, I won't make you uncomfortable and have you take off too much. You're good to go, Francesca. I got dressed slowly, trying to figure out if I should launch into the speech I prepared on the way here about how my parents were great and I didn't want to leave them. I looked up at her, and she gave me another one of her wide, sweet smiles. She seemed nice and reasonable. But then I thought about Miss Cooper, and how she seemed like she was helpful and understanding, but she wasn't. I decided that it was better not to say anything more than I needed where these people were involved, and to simply lie when I needed to. Oh, oh my gosh. Wow. What an amazing story. Oh, my God. So many levels. I love the story. Wow. I'm just, oh, 
I have chills. I have chills. Oh, Angelica. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you for joining us again, Francesca. And really quick before we get started, Life Out Loud just wants to recognize that these kinds of stories can really touch people in unexpected ways. And we want to share with listeners that if you or someone you know is experiencing family violence, there are resources available to you. Sanctuary for Families is an organization in New York that aids in this and can be reached through their website, sanctuaryforfamilies.org or via phone at 1-800-621-4673. That's 1-800-621-4673. What a beautiful story. Um, I just, I really need to, to ask this question. You make, you make mention in your story and you say that you decided that it was better not to say anything more than I needed to where these people were involved. Do you feel that now as an adult looking back in hindsight or was that more important so in the moment? How does this affect you now? Um, I think that that was more in the moment type of thing. Um, because at that age, I was kind of like ignorant to like what was considered illegal or legal or what was normal or what wasn't normal. And so I kind of mm -hmm. just saw like white people with authority as like the enemy, mm -hmm. you know, but like now that I'm older, I realize that what I took to be normal isn't and that they were simply doing their job. But at the time, I was just like, oh, my gosh, this traitor. Like, I need to be careful yeah. on these people, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you were a kid. You were yeah. just a kid. Yeah. It was I, really scary. I actually yeah. had a experience while reading your story. I actually resonated with your story, Francesca, because this actually something similar happened to me when I was in middle school in which my sister actually um, accidentally one day told her teacher when she was like around in second grade that like um, she got hit by um, my mom. But like, you know, like the, you know, like when you get punished, like when you're not doing your homework, like, or you're not understanding like a um, question and it's like your parents are trying to help you and I guess the frustration and all that kind of stuff. So what happened was that my sister actually confessed to this teacher that, um, there was beating going on and we ended up having um, child services come over to my house Ooh. because of it. And I remember mm -hmm. there was a um, social worker who actually came over to my middle school too. And I had no idea. I just got taken away from class and I had to sit down with the Dean in front of me with the social worker as well, being asked all these questions. And I was very confused. And I remember also feeling like, you know, like this authority type of person in front of me and I just felt so nervous and I didn't know if I was saying the correct thing or not or if like one thing I said would lead to like a wrong um, mishappening that would occur so like reading your story it just kind of took me back to that moment and I guess as a little kid you think that it's normal or like you know you see that this is something that like it's also a cultural thing as well right. I believe right. um, as kids, I mean, I feel like with each culture, it's different, you know, we grow up differently, our parents grew up differently. So some habits that they grew up with, they tend to, you know, do it again with their kids. But as kids, we're used to it. But like in other instances, especially like when I remember Francesca, you were looking at the website, and you were seeing how beating is illegal. 
And it comes as a surprise to us because sometimes it's something that is culturally accepted. Mm -hmm. So I think it's very interesting that you incorporated all of this into your story. And it was just something I really connected with in that moment, which will lead me to the next question that I'd like to ask you. In your piece, you look at your parents and think about trying to see them differently. You write, I tried to see them as criminals or child abusers that the website suggested they were, but I just couldn't. These were the same parents that always let me climb in between them in bed whenever I had a bad dream and played a game with me until we all drifted back to sleep. These were the same parents that tried and failed to teach me how to swim and practice braiding hair on my dolls with me. You use such visual language when describing these moments with your parents, and you never spend much time on their disciplinary practices. Did you write the story in this way, with a purpose? Um, now that I think about it, I feel like I, I, I was trying to write from kind of the perspective when I was younger and a little bit of the insight that I have now. And at the time, I realized that Honestly, like all the things I didn't like about the way my parents acted or disciplined me, like that wasn't important to me. Like in the moment when it came to deciding whether I should stay with them or whether I should be taken away, I felt like the only thing that mattered were all the good. And so that's why I decided to focus on that. Because mm -hmm. in my mind, it was kind of just like, you know, yeah, they do this, but like, you know, the good outshines the bad. Like it's not so horrible that like I'm miserable or unhappy. You know, like, I think there was a point in the story where I said something like, um, this is like a, a common thing. Like, you know, when your parents are upset with you and you go off in your room and you're really upset, you plot to leave or whatever with your bag and all that. I had moments like that. And it's just like, everybody has moments like that. It doesn't mean that I hate my parents or that they're terrible. So I didn't think, um, the place that I was in when I was younger, like I knew all that was hyper-focused on was wanting to stay with the people that I loved. So I felt like mm. I should, you know, um, expand on what it is I love about them, I guess, or why they're good parents. Right. Yeah, absolutely, Francesca. And I have to say, um, the way, like, in your story, like, the way that, like, the, like, the sheer, like, confusion, because you were a kid, and you think, like, something like this could never happen to me. And like my parents, they're my parents. I love them. And I don't want to be taken away. I don't want my family to be broken up. And it reminded me a lot of the story of my story that I shared on the podcast a while ago. And uh, your story just really uh, hit me in a lot of unexpected ways because I felt so connected to your character because I have been there before. I have experienced everything that you were experiencing in your story. And it's, it's not an easy thing to remember and relive. And reading your story kind of did that for me in, I, I wouldn't say a good way, but it was, I just felt really connected to your character and I just wanted to give you a hug. <laughs> yeah, when I'm writing, like I, I try very hard to, you know, make it so that you feel like you're right there. Like as I as mm -hmm. I was writing it, as I'm thinking about it right now, like I can get anxiety, I can experience the same anxiety that I felt mm -hmm. in the moment. So that's why like I try to um 
you know, like really get detailed about like the heart racing and the stomach mm-hmm. and, and all that. Mm-hmm. Because literally, like it was a physical feeling. Like I literally felt mm-hmm. it in my stomach. Like this yeah. is serious. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, I think yeah. you did a good job with that, especially there was yes. this one part where you were um, confronted with the dean, and you mentioned how you could see every single wrinkle on her face. Oh yeah. So it really, it, you really put us in that moment. You know, the red hair and the wrinkles on the face. Oh, yeah. I even, I even yeah. felt scared. I was just like, yeah. oh my gosh, was this really something you had to confront face to face? So you really, yeah, like, like, like what, you were there. Yeah. What really got me was when you said that she smiled at you, but she never smiles. Like that's when I knew, ooh, this is this is serious. Something serious is about to happen because the lady who never smiles is smiling at her. Something's about to happen. It's, it's such a visual story. It really is. And like, I you you succeeded in everything that you just said you wanted to do, mm-hmm. in in making us feel like we were right there. I definitely felt like I was right there, and I could oh, see, yeah. I could really envision like your enemy, that first social worker who went to your house in that yellow top. <laughs> I I said, oh, that yellow top. And I could feel like I was right there, like seeing her. I could picture her so well. The, mm-hmm. the story was so visual and, and great in that aspect, um, for sure. Especially about the part about like the blue card. And you know what that blue card means. You know you're going to get a yeah. phone call home. That was very relatable. Mm-hmm. And I like how you captured like the fear that's attached to the phrase um, ACS. I found it re- really relatable because in my household, that was kind of used as a threat. Like, if you don't do what you're supposed to do, ACS is going to come and take you away. That's what my yeah. mom used My threat. mom used to say the same thing to me. Wow. <laughs> oh, yes. It's one of those things that's also coupled with, like, um, like when you're, I don't know, when your parents are just I don't know, anything other than they have experiences that they can kind of relate to and be like, you know what it's like in El Salvador? Like, that's what it was for me. Like, do you want to get sent back to El Salvador? Like, do do you want that to happen to you? And I'd be like, oh my goodness, El Salvador sounds like this horrible place. Or, or, you know, I, all sorts of things like, you're not going to eat what's on your plate, but what about the children in Africa? That kind of thing where it's like, my goodness mom and dad like stop like i know i feel bad about the children in africa i know i don't want to get acs called on me like all these things yeah. apparently yes, just kind like of- you think you have it so bad yes <laughs> yes it's that it's very much that but um with that being said something that we don't get closure on in your story is how this all started with you trying to essentially protect your reputation against a boy in your class touching you and possibly other girls without your permission. Would your parents have understood if you told them the truth or would things have been worse, like you described, they would be at school if you told on Ezekiel? And if you're comfortable, can you talk about the the assumptions of girls supposedly letting themselves get felt up, being called fast and blame not being placed on the boys in these situations? Well, fun fact, I had written a story for one of my creative writing classes about that, that was focused on the Ezekiel situation. And it was some specific line that inspired me to write about this story. Um, and honestly, you know, if, if I had told my parents, yes, they would have believed me, 
But for me, it was about, I know that they would have made like a super big deal about it. And I didn't want that like backfiring on me and like mm-hmm. the the dynamic at, at school. Because I don't remember if I mentioned it. I think I did about um, the influence that Ezekiel had in the class. Yes. And mm-hmm. yeah. Was, yeah. So, and I was also like bullied a lot around that age in that grade or in that class. And so I was like, trying to do as much as I can to like, you know, lessen the chances of me being bullied, just making it as easy as possible for me, especially where he was concerned. Cause like him and a couple other people, um, they were kind of like the, the instigators of my bullying. So I wasn't trying to do anything to, you know, get him in trouble and make my life worse. Yeah. And, um, and so that was part of the reason why I, you know, didn't want to say anything, but as far as um, the assumptions of girls being <laughs> fast, I feel like um, from what I've seen, from what I've experienced hearing other people, like especially like black girls, like people are always like they're, they're you know, they can't just be a kid. Like everything has to be sexualized. Like this is too grown. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my parents, I feel like they, they, they're one of those parents where it's like, you know, you can't wear these, this certain outfit, you know, if so-and-so is going to be coming over, even though I'm in my house and, you know, so-and-so is the problem and not my outfit, but still I can't wear something that's too short. And like when I was younger, not anymore, um, my mom would try and tell me that like certain outfits I couldn't wear, um, unless I was with them. But like, if I were out by myself, like I, I couldn't wear this outfit. And I I also remember like uh, this one time I was telling my mom, you know, this guy in a car was trying to, you know, talk to me or whatever, catcalling me or something like that. And she like took a look at my outfit and she's like, well, that's probably because your shirt, your dress is a little short, like you shouldn't wear that. And I'm just like, okay. You know, she, one of those parents, you know, and I feel like that combined too, I just wasn't comfortable telling them. Like, I would rather just have kept that quiet, you know, because I don't, I didn't think it at the time, but now that I think about it, I wouldn't be surprised if my parents had like found a way to like say it was somehow my fault. Like maybe I was too friendly, even though that certainly wasn't the case, you know, or maybe I'm too tolerant, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. But that's what really struck me, actually, that like that you even call it the Ezekiel situation. It's like it's just so normal and expected that we don't even cover that in the story. It's like, oh, yeah, that one guy who does that thing and you have to do this to make sure that you don't upset him or his friends or this other stuff. And in fact, I'm willing to get myself and my family in trouble over it. Like it's like we don't even talk about that layer but like that's a huge layer like that's how this all started like you know I mean that's a really big deal that we're just sort of like oh that kid yeah <laughs> no and, and now my entire family's livelihood like like <laughs> fabric of their being is in jeopardy and it's because some guy felt me up like it's 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 something that is definitely ingrained and definitely the kind of thing that it's just like, it, it's just part of it. I, I think all of this story is like, it's just, a lot of it is like, you not being trusted. And 
I don't even know how to like correctly word with what I'm saying, but <laughs> it's a lot around like, if people would just trust, trust Francesca, then Francesca wouldn't have had to say any of this and she would have been believed. And then Ezekiel would have been dealt with and no other girls would also like, you know. It, and if another point in time, if she felt that something was wrong with the way her parents are, were treating her, she could have brought it up in a way that was comfortable for her in an yeah. organic and honest way. Yeah. Yeah. Hate it. Yeah. It's so weird because I was actually just watching the docuseries on Netflix today, Unbelievable. And it talks about this, like, and just always blame. <laughs> yeah. And when I was younger too, like I'm definitely not the like I've definitely grown to be more confrontational and to like speak up for myself, but around that age I wasn't at all. And I used to just like let anything happen to me. Like I used to just accept the blame and think to myself, well maybe yeah, I shouldn't have done that, you know? Mm -hmm. Or maybe like, you know, you know, irritated Ezekiel. I used to like, you know, say that in my head. But then as I got to maybe like a couple years later, a few years later, I realized like, no, I'm not to blame, you know? And that goes for like other things in my life. Like, you know, I just start to learn more and realize, um, yeah. I'm so glad to hear that. Like I was like internally fist pumping just now. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'm glad that that's like something that's come out of this. And to kind of close even further, what would you like listeners to take away from this story? Um, well, I would say firstly, maybe a couple things. Like one is that like not everything is all black and white. And you know, um, to try to be like open-minded and more understanding and like things are not how they always seem on the outside, not to make assumptions and stuff like that. But um, also that like your perspective and your mindset is like something that's always like constantly changing. And like part of what shapes like our attitudes and our beliefs is our experiences and what we consider norm, like family dynamics is like, I feel like for me at least, is like a big part of my identity and how I view things, you know? And like this whole beating thing, like I know that, <laughs> I know that among like, Caribbean, the Caribbean, like it's, it's normal. And I know that my parents, like they're, my grandparents used to do that to my parents and so on and so forth. Like, that's just, that's just how it goes, you know? And so it's, it's always going to be one of those things where it's like, okay, like the same way that, you know, my parents didn't let me sleep over my friend's house, um, unless they knew the parents, but this girl in my class, she was allowed to, it was, I thought it was just one of those things, you know, like just one of the rules of the house. And, um, oh, I got a little off track for what I was trying to say. <laughs> is, um, basically what to take away is that what you consider normal isn't always normal. And I feel like you, you learn that not even, you can learn that at any age, basically, like, I have a couple of things. I'm not even going to get into that. What I consider normal changed only recently and I'm 20. And I think that's going to continue to happen, you know, um, as you like grow and experience. Um, and I'm sure like I'm still ignorant in some ways mm -hmm. and, you know, hopefully I remedied that. Uh, 
and yeah. All right. Well, you are just such a vivid, beautiful writer and you write with so much heart. Yeah, I just had to say that. Yeah. I, I thank you so much for saying that you're like still growing and stuff too. This is the second story of yours that we've had this season. And mm -hmm. I'm just so, I, I love the way that you let us into your mind and into pieces of your life like that. I love that we've been like able to see you grow. You're someone that we've, um, you've also hosted this, this is getting like personal, but like you've also hosted this, this uh, season as well. And just, you know, getting to know you as a person has just, I, I love that we've been, you know, able to do this, like know who you are as a host. And even from like knowing your questions, not to get very behind the scenes, -y, but like, mm -hmm. you know, the way that you write questions to getting to know you in that respect, and also getting to know these pieces of your life. It's just, an, it's just been really great. Like you have such a wonderful way of explaining things and I've loved it and you're allowed to grow you know sometimes <laughs> sometimes I feel like people are told um honestly especially marginalized folks are told that you have to have all of the correct answers all of the time and I'm glad that we're seeing someone like in transit like someone who's who's growing and that you're sharing those pieces because those are exactly what are missing in creative nonfiction for sure mm -hmm. so to wrap up thank you so much francesca thank you for being here thank you for sharing your stories and for this interview thank you, so thank you for having me thank you for giving me a platform to share my story and you know give people insight thank you Thank you. <laughs> this next story is by an author named Caitlin Emery. Caitlin is a transfer student from Borough of Manhattan Community College and has been attending John Jay for three semesters. She dropped out of college at age 19 and moved to New York, leaving her home of Utah. She has lived here for over 10 years now and has finally been able to go back to school. Her major is in the process of being changed to human services and community justice with the hopes of becoming a counselor slash therapist. She attends school part-time and works part-time and hopes to graduate sometime in the next million years. Let's take a listen to this piece by Caitlin entitled Chicken. I had been to psychiatrists, psychologists, nutritionists, dietitians. My mom even wrote a letter to Oprah. So it wasn't entirely shocking when my mom told me she had hired a hypnotist to come over to our home and hypnotize me into eating normally. It wasn't a regular eating disorder. It was more like a food disorder. A simple way to say it is that I was a picky eater, but it ran deeper than that. I would only eat certain fruits, white bread, some cheeses, mostly melted on bread, cereals, and fries. Eating out was a constant nightmare. I only ordered grilled cheese sandwiches wherever we went. If we went to any kind of restaurant that didn't have a grilled cheese, I wouldn't eat anything. Every Sunday, my grandmother had a big dinner, and every Sunday, I had a plate with a dinner roll and an apple, maybe some grapes. It became such a defining quality about me that people stopped encouraging me to try new things, and if I wanted to try something on my own, everyone noticed. Everyone saw if there was an extra thing on my plate, which made me not end up wanting to eat it. And I didn't want to be asked about it. I didn't want people to notice and say something or not say something. The pressure was too much. The story goes that my mom took me for a routine checkup around the age of five. 
and she mentioned that I wasn't eating a variety of food and that I would rather be hungry than try something new. The doctor said to her, don't fight her, she'll always win the food battle. Apparently this was all the fodder I needed. My mom tells me that any time she'd try to get me to eat thereafter, I would look her in the eye and say, I'm always going to win the food battle. Now, I don't recall any of this, but it does sound very on brand. The hypnotist shows up. He's probably in his late 40s, kind of portly. I can't say for sure if he's wearing a vest, but it felt like he was wearing a vest. He also brought his son with him, an aspiring hypnotist himself. I was around the age of 10 or 11. This boy seemed only slightly older than me, which was mortifying. The hypnotist put me under the hypnotist spell and told me that on his count of three, I would stand up and start playing the drums. I didn't want to do this. I was so embarrassed. But I also knew that my mom had spent money. This person was in my house, and if I didn't get up and do it, he'd just continue to try and make me actually hypnotized. When he got to three, I stood up and half-heartedly played the drums in my living room. I wasn't sure if hypnotized people open their eyes or not, but I decided to keep my clothes lest I see my mom, the hypnotist, and his son all staring at me. After the drumming proved that I was deeply hypnotized, Mr. Hypnotist told me to lie back down. He told me to imagine that I was walking to my kitchen and that I was hungry. He asked me what I saw when I opened the pantry door and what I would choose. I told him bread and peanut butter. He said there was no bread or peanut butter. Now what would I choose? I said some cereal. He said there was no cereal. He said there was only chicken. I was starting to catch on. I said, okay, I choose chicken. He told me to imagine myself eating the chicken. I said, okay. He asked if the chicken made me sick. I said it did not. He asked if the chicken hurt me. I said it did not. Questions like these went on for what felt like a million years before he snapped his fingers and I was allowed to no longer be hypnotized. God, that stupid smile everyone made when I opened my eyes. You know that feeling when someone is explaining to you what you did in your sleep or when you were drunk and you don't really remember but it's fun to be told about yourself? It was like that, except I remembered everything that happened and it wasn't fun to be told about myself. It would be another 12 years before I started eating chicken. Wow. Hey, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. That was uh, incredible. All right. So to start things off, our first question. So what makes this story so funny is your use of your adult voice to tell a childhood story, particularly as you determine whether or not to act hypnotized and weighing whether or not hypnotized people open their eyes or not. And when your drumming proves something that we, as the audience, know you're faking. And you have a very distinct author voice. And I'd like to know, why did you choose to write the story from your current point of view and not as you, you as a child? Oh, um, yeah, I wish I knew that it was a choice. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I remember the assignment, we had like an assignment due and I had been working on a story for a few days and it was like a really dark <laughs> depressing story that I couldn't figure mm. out how to like get right it just yeah. like thought it was feeling dark for the sake of darkness and I remember mm -hmm. it was like the night before it was due um Oof. and I just had like this memory and so I just like typed it out and it was like um it wasn't this exact version but it was like pretty close to kind of like one of those just like first drafts like oh I like this this is good this is fun like so it just kind of like I don't know flowed out of you yeah 
and yeah. I guess yeah just the memory of being embarrassed and like reliving it but from a different perspective of like oh that was stupid and it wasn't my fault <laughs> okay wow I love it that's like my favorite line is you know that feeling when someone is explaining to you what you did in your sleep or when you were drunk and you don't remember but it's fun to be told about yourself it was like that except I remembered everything that happened and it wasn't fun to be told about my felt self that is my favorite line I think I've ever heard in the story because it's just like it is like exactly that. And I can imagine you as a five-year-old just going like, like trying to pretend that, that, that like, yeah. Like trying to, to be like, oh my God, I did that. Like, no way. When you know exactly what you did. I love it. I love that part so much. Thanks. Yeah, it's just so relatable. I feel like everybody has had that experience at some point in their life. I'm like, oh, okay, so that happened all right and it, it, yeah it's just so relatable like I yeah that's one of my favorite lines too yes and with that being said you write that your mom told you that after that visit to the doctor at age five you took to repeating the doctor's words and telling her I'm always going to win the food battle whenever whenever she'd encourage you to eat have you talked to her recently about what that battle looked like over the years and I'm curious, has anything changed? Um, yeah, I've talked to my mom about it a lot. Um, of all my, I have four siblings and everyone has their own kind of different uh, picky food stuff. Mm -hmm. And I, I was definitely the worst out of everyone. <laughs> but now I'm the only person in my family that'll eat anything and like, really seek out to try as many foods as I can because I didn't get to try many foods until I was like in my 20s so then I was like oh there are so many things I haven't had um and my mom yeah maintains that I mean she really did try everything she could think of <laughs> to try to get me to eat and it just like the more attention that was brought to it the less I would change um and I guess it was moving 2,000 miles away that really helped me. <laughs> yeah. Get away from the judgment. Yeah. Yeah. From the pressure. But now I come home and I'm always like making them food or trying to get them to eat new things. And um, it, it's a, it's been a wild 180. <laughs> like, what do you try to get them to eat? Oh, I mean, I, I, like I made them Brussels sprouts. They've never had Brussels sprouts. And no one would eat them. <laughs> the picky eaters, now. Oh my god! Wow. <laughs> um, when my mom came to visit, I like ordered Indian food. Um, and she was like, she she was cute. She like tried it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just too different for them. I yeah, I think so. I think there's something about. Um, I don't know. I also think that, like. They just don't, I don't know if they don't like food because they don't understand that it's supposed to have a lot of flavor. <laughs> so it's like also a realization of like, oh, maybe it wasn't that I didn't like food. Maybe it was that no one here knows how to eat. <laughs> oh like their food. <laughs> oh, it's so funny. 
oh my goodness that um <laughs> i don't know if there is necessarily something that you want the greater audience to kind of take away from this story other than that it's like a funny excerpt but if there is anything at all what would you like listeners to take away from this story hmm that's a great question i'm not really sure i know that um i could talk like ad nauseum about food and um how much it's like I grew up in a really, you know, religious household and everyone was very strict and I feel like there's um, discomfort in things that are new in even like small ways, including food. And so, um, and I think, you know, I did leave home and, you know, the religion I was brought up in and all these and like, if you could attribute it to, <laughs> trying foods you know like it, it could you could make the argument that like when you experience more you are open to more and then you like I don't know leave <laughs> your religions uh, but um you know food doesn't have to be that dramatic but I I think about uh my experience with food and the fear of it and like stepping outside of your comfort zone um to that is symbolic. <laughs> yeah no it definitely is I think it is that deep you know and I love it and I like that this is kind of like a very light funny way to kind of bring that about like I've never heard I didn't even know to be honest that hypnotist did house calls until I read this story but apparently apparently they do and to five-year-olds <laughs> yeah that's another I was 10 at the time when the like oh. the hypnotist came but um my mom yeah. Yeah, got really into hypnosis for a while. <laughs> yeah. I love it. <laughs> I like that that's something that moms can just kind of get into. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on and telling us this story and for that ending, that last like um, ending piece. I really, I love that. I love that takeaway for our listeners. Um, and yeah, thank you for sharing with us and for being with us here today. Thank you guys. So great. Thanks. That concludes our fourth episode of the fifth season, Help Not Wanted. We are also excited to bring you new stories soon, amplifying these younger voices from backgrounds you don't normally hear from. You can always find out more at www.lifeoutloudpodcast.com or by searching Life Out Loud Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or YouTube. We also have an Instagram and Facebook if you want to get some behind-the-scenes content. We'd like to thank everyone who helps make this possible, including our sound engineers and editors, our episode writers, our website developers, everyone behind the scenes here at Life Out Loud. Here's to a hundred more stories in the coming years. And to our audience, we hope you love these stories as much as we did. It was a joy bringing them to you. A very special thank you to everyone listening in. We'll see you soon and good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.